Life And is a podcast brought to you by Scranton Fringe, made possible by the Luzerne County Medical Society and in partnership with Park Multimedia. Hello, listeners. My name is Tanya Verkaitis, and welcome to another episode of Life And. This podcast has one goal, to document and celebrate the strange phenomena we call the human experience by sharing true stories. This season of our podcast, we turn our focus onto the theme of life and celebration. Though seemingly lighthearted, like most things in life, a celebration can take on many forms and mean many different things to very different people. It is our hope that by hearing these true firsthand experiences, we can work towards creating more unified, honest, and supportive communities. Thank you, dear listener, for making time for the stories of others. This is Life and Celebration. Last season on Life and, we began a tradition of once per season inviting a member of our production crew to join me on the microphone as a featured storyteller. Last season, Dan Kimbrough, our sound engineer and tech producer extraordinaire, joined us, and this season, I'm thrilled to introduce one of our co-producers, Connor Kelly O'Brien. Connor is an actor, theater maker, and arts advocate. He has performed off-Broadway, on stages across the country, as well as a few small TV and film roles. His work as a playwright have seen several productions, both in the U.S. and United Kingdom, and he is a state-rostered artist within Pennsylvania where he serves as a resident artist and educator. He is the co-founder and executive director of the Scranton Fringe Festival, as well as a proud member of the Dramatist Guild of America. Please note this story touches upon the very real challenges of coming to terms with sexual or gender identity in your youth, including some abrasive language. A great resource to explore is the national nonprofit organization, The Trevor Project. Any listener that would benefit from this inclusive LGBTQ resource or know someone who would should visit www.thetrevorproject.org for more information. When picturing a young person's first Halloween, there is likely a distinct series of images that you associate with this celebratory milestone. Adorable costumes forced upon an unaware toddler's body, silly pictures with family and friends, a gigantic bag of candy acquired by a strategic night of supervised trick-or-treating. The story I wish to share with you today is about my first Halloween celebration, which occurred at the joyous age of 18, and under very different circumstances than those I previously mentioned. For a bit of context, I was raised in a Christian faith that did not practice, or in fact allow, the celebration of nearly all holidays. As a Jehovah's Witness at the time, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, even one's own birthday were off-limits due to their alleged pagan or nationalistic origins. Therefore, I have no frame of reference as most of you who are listening to this would have. Many have expressed to me over the years how awful and sad this experience sounds, and while it did come with many, 
many challenges, the lack of holiday celebrations is not one I would personally place high on the list. I have no sense of loss over something I never had. I only knew the world that had been built around me. Though done with love, my childhood set me apart from the experience of my peers. For most, holidays and their related celebrations are a means of connecting us to those we love and, as years pass, connecting ourselves to our memories. They are the ways we mark the passing of time and they give us milestones to look back on. I just didn't have that. While my home was filled with books, music, and plenty of movies, it was definitely curated. My mother directed me to the books, music, and TV shows she deemed worthy, which, as you can imagine, didn't exactly keep me up to date on the current cultural touchstones at my public high school. This is important to keep in mind for the rest of my story. It wasn't until my senior year of high school that the large world, which I was sure I knew, became much smaller and far more complicated. I began to have strange questions and dangerous desires. Drugs, sex, and drinking were not the temptations that lured me into the shadows of the world, but rather the addictive substance I craved was the allure of celebrating Halloween. Never in my 18 years of living had I trick-or-treated or attended a Halloween costume party. As an adult, the irony that as a Jehovah's Witness we felt comfortable going door-to-door on almost any day except Halloween is well understood. As a yet-to-be-actualized queer man who now works in the professional performing arts, you can imagine how intoxicating the idea of theatrical costumes and mystery would be to me, especially as questions of my identity, beliefs, sexuality, and career path began to swirl faster and faster in my mind. I made the completely rebellious decision to, in my last year of high school, celebrate the fantastic and forbidden holiday known as Halloween. I crafted an incredibly detailed plan that began weeks before October 31st. I arranged transportation. I would be picked up by a small group of friends several blocks away from my home and whisked away to a kegger in the woods a few miles away. I also weaved the story of a large group project that required lawn study sessions on a Saturday, late at night, at a fictional classmate's home, never providing a specific address while ensuring the neighborhood in question was one my parents were familiar with. In hindsight, I likely provided more detail and cover than anyone was required to do. The only missing piece was quite possibly the single most important aspect of my first lawn-delayed Halloween, the costume. Would it be something pulled from the current zeitgeist of pop culture? Would it be ripped from the pages of literature to ensure my intelligence was respected? Would it, dare I say, showcase my more attractive physical characteristics? I quickly decided an extra-large head and uncoordinated pale lawn legs did not lend themselves to many options in the sexy costume department, so I moved on. Earlier, I mentioned how my world, as all our worlds, is framed first by our parents and the things they expose us to. We grow and go on to discover our own interests, explore our own passions, and of course, create our own stories. Television, the glorious and magical portal into countless stories, was, for any millennial, a key tool of influence for our families to utilize when shaping our minds and spirits. My mother did, and still does, hold a large affinity for British programming, which aired primarily through our public broadcasting station. From her lap, I learned the names, quirks, and foils of each and every character. No detail escaped my memory. What I did not realize uh, was quite how old these programs were, 
and more importantly, how very few others in my peer group were as familiar with 30-plus-year-old British TV content as I was. So, you can imagine my immense confusion when I arrived at my first Halloween party, a huge beer bash in the woods of Northeast Pennsylvania, underscored by Kesha tunes, dressed as the witty and fake character of Mr. Humphreys from Are You Being Served, and not a single soul knew who the hell I was supposed to be. I will pause for a moment to allow the listeners who do know this reference to laugh and or cringe, and for the listeners who do not know this reference, I will give my best quick description. Mr. Humphreys, played by the amazing late actor John Inman, was as close to an out-and-proud gay character that one could likely find on British television of that era. A respected member of the fictional Grace Brothers department store, a great deal of his humor came from cheap shots at his flamboyant walk, high-pitched voice, and the not-so-subtle innuendo regarding his eternal bachelorhood. Despite the many problematic elements of this stereotypical character, in hindsight, I loved him. He was witty and wore tailor-fit clothing, he dished out one-liners better than any other character on the show, and he did it all with striking white hair. Basically, he was the British prototype of Tim Gunn, which, by the way, is who all of my peers assumed I was dressed as, having no frame of reference for Mr. Humphreys. Still, I am mystified at my own decision-making for choosing this dated British TV character as my first official Halloween costume. I crafted that costume over the course of several weeks, considering every detail as I constructed it within the sanctuary that was the Scranton High School Theater dressing rooms. So, the night of the party came, and I was ready. Myself and seven others piled into a small car and drove the nearly six miles out to an abandoned parking lot that was once utilized for New York commuters. A minimum of a hundred different teenagers from across the region were gathered a few hundred yards into the woods. A large, bright red bonfire marked the center of this particular celebration. The fire cast at elongated shadows of all those in attendance across the trees, leaf-covered ground, and many scattered kegs of whatever cheap beer someone's older sister could rustle up. I am standing at the party, alone, awkwardly dancing with a red solo cup that I am pretending is beer, but is actually water. A tall, hulking figure we're going to call Dave, that I knew though did not attend the same school as me, approached through the sea of Axe body spray and poor decisions. He was not wearing a costume, but instead wore his football uniform. I am not clear if Dave made this decision out of necessity or desire. He stood next to me for a moment, then drunkenly scanned me from top to bottom, trying to decipher who I was supposed to be. Before he could open his mouth, I blurted out what now seems like a never-ending rant over the character, their origins, that I had tried to come up with someone not mainstream, but still recognizable, and I attempted to throw in a bit of self-deprecating humor as I admitted that I was coming to terms with my clear failure to portray Mr. Humphreys. David paused. Then he turned and took one step closer to me, his massive frame illuminated in an ominous pane of October moonlight, and stated, Word of advice. If you don't want people to know you're a faggot, then don't dress like one. He laughed. I laughed. He then walked away. And I stood silent for a moment. It was not the first, and certainly not the last time, that word had been hurled at me. I believe no male born in the 20th century has not been called a faggot. I am not minimizing that word's harm nor vile nature, but in hindsight, as a proud queer adult male... I have found reclaiming it for humor to be a powerful tool. I was still a few years away from coming to full, brilliant terms with my sexuality. I was raised in quite a unique and different faith. I was, I am proud to say, always quite a unique, different, and a tad bit odd of a person. 
But at the age of 18, as I attempted to find some sense of normalcy and connection with my peers, the last thing I wanted to do was be standing in a moment that would make a future good story. I just wanted to be 18, celebrating with nothing odd or different about me. I had failed. I believe that was what truly hurt the most. Not the hurtful words of someone I barely knew, but that even for one night, I wasn't able to just blend into the world around me. I stood out, for better or worse, like a rainbow neon sign within the woods. I gathered myself for a moment, ripped off the white wig from atop my head, and exited the party quickly and silently, with no warning to my friends, and walked the long and lonely five miles home. However, my story is not over. This particular event would not have its conclusion until a few years later. I had by this time moved on again, off again to Manhattan. The night before Thanksgiving in Scranton, as I'm sure in many towns and small cities across the country, is a night of revelry and regretful reunions. Every restaurant, bar, and pub you may stumble upon likely has a large percentage of your high school graduating class, many of whom you love seeing, and at least a few you truly forgot existed. I was sitting at the bar of a particular beloved local watering hole, sipping a whiskey sour and laughing with friends, when a specter of my past walked his way over to me and began to loom overhead. A bit longer hair and a few extra pounds, I still immediately recognized David. And for the first time in over half a decade, memories of that Halloween night flashed in my mind. His cologne was an overpowering oak mixed with some kind of citrus, which made an interesting mixture with his powerful breath of beer. Before I could open my mouth, David pulled me into a hug and began reciting what seemed like a rehearsed speech of apology for his comments to me that evening. He cited details that I only now remember and include in this story because he brought them up. I assume he had seen my name floating on Facebook events for that week or perhaps heard word through a grapevine of texts where I would be in town that evening because his level of determination and intent was clear. He had entered that bar seeking me out to ask for forgiveness. I sat stunned for a moment as this was not a grudge nor even a memory I had held on to. I was touched by his sincerity and immediately told him there were no hard feelings. We chatted for a moment, but my group was moving on to another place, and so I once again told him that I was fine, all was forgiven, and I hoped he would move on himself. The next day, Thanksgiving morning, I received a friend request from David on Facebook. I accepted, and within minutes he sent me a paragraph of text. Yet another apology, but this time he added a far more interesting layer of context. David had apparently long known his sexuality was, as he put it, complicated, and he was hoping he could buy me dinner that weekend and take me, as he put it, on a proper date. I gave it serious consideration. I thanked him for yet another apology and said that while I was flattered, I was not interested in going on a date with him at this time. I wished him well, all the best, and made it clear how happy I was that he had come to love his queer identity, just as I had done. Within seconds, he replied with the three words everyone loves to hear. Fuck you, bitch. And then he blocked me on all the social media outlets where we had just reconnected. Perhaps he felt slighted by this rejection? Maybe he felt after such a sincere apology, I owed him something? This was a fascinating example of while things do get better, sometimes certain people don't. Celebrations for most are how we connect with others and how we mark the passage of time. And now I can say this is true for me because I will never forget that Halloween or that particular Thanksgiving. I love my life. It's good and challenging elements. 
My journey to establishing traditions of celebration was unique and a bit odd, and therefore, I can't imagine it any other way. Thank you for sharing your story, Connor. I love the fact that your celebration is your attempt to be quote-unquote normal, which ended up being abnormal, shall we say. I'm curious to know how this first step into normalcy informed you and how you proceeded Um, later. It definitely informed me in the sense that and it's funny because I was just having this conversation recently about, you know, in the arts and theater and rejection, it was a, let's say it was a great audition <laughs> for future rejection, both personally and professionally, because I did everything within my control. I put myself out there. I went with good friends who, in, in, in their defense, I could have easily, you know, hooked back up with that night and made the best of it. I was just so defeated and done and tired. Um, I think it really informed the idea of putting yourself out there and, and making strides and trying to make connections is not always going to come with an immediate reward, right? It's the idea of the very fact that I did it, even though that, you know, and it wasn't fair and it it shouldn't have gone that way, but it did. And I chose to leave and that was my choice in the moment. But, you know, it definitely has informed me as an adult just to keep putting yourself out there in in any sense of the word. And while you should never put yourself out in risk and you should never let people minimize you or put up with that kind of nonsense, it definitely taught me to just go with it more. I mean, and that has influenced everything from how I approach relationships to how I approach certain art forms. So in essence, you were auditioning for the role of Mr. Humphreys. <laughs> yes, or or, or, my, or I was auditioning for the role of myself. So. <laughs> the role of yourself, but you came across as Tim Gunn. But I'm just wondering what people thought of the fact that you wanted to be Tim Gunn. I think they were just so confused and they just wanted to, like most people, put a label on something. It was just like, oh, you're Tim Gunn. Okay, moved on. You know, because Project Runway at that point, I think, had been out for several years. And it was, yeah, it was weird. I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't know what my end game was in hindsight, because I was so offended that they thought I was Tim Gunn. But it's like, no, that's still a better option than what you, I was. At least it was someone that they recognized. Um, yeah, I think they were just so happy to be like, oh, he's Tim Gunn. OK, moving on. That no one really cared. And that's and ultimately, I think that's really I mean, that's a great lesson that no one really cared but they didn't know who I was, who I was, who I, who I was pretending to be. But it was definitely eye-opening to the fact of like, it was, just, it was just lame. It was just a lame Halloween choice that even as an adult looking back, it's like, that was stupid. Why did you do that? Why did you go with something that you should have known? No one would know who the hell you were. <laughs> but it made a good story, so I stand by it. I love the fact that you also just said putting a label on it, right? Like you were labeling yourself, But we as individuals are always much more comfortable with people if we can label them in some way, whether it's positive or negative. Um, So I just love the fact that you use that word. Something else I was wondering about, um, you talked about your childhood and the lack of celebration during. So my curiosity is, what could you celebrate? And if you weren't creating what are considered traditional milestones, what are your milestones from your childhood? Those are good questions. I mean, so I should, 
and this is a lot more detailed than I felt I could get into in the story. So I had it, even within anyone out there who also grew up in a, as a Jehovah's Witness, I grew up in a very unique situation where my mother was and still is a devout Jehovah's Witness. My father, uh, who is no longer with us, was never a witness, although they, my mother and father stayed married. My mother found the faith a year or two into their marriage. So I kind of grew up with this weird duality and religious divide in the household. Um, and there was, and it was love, and there was love, and there were good moments, and it was, you know, I'm not trying to make anyone, you know, feel overly sympathy for me, or overt sympathy for me. Um, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses celebrate uh, an event called the Memorial of Christ's Death. It's kind of like Passover and Easter combined. Um, that's one night a year, and that was sort of our only annual tradition. Um, but we traveled, we went to these things called conventions and assemblies that weren't holidays, they weren't celebrations, they were just really long and boring, uh, multi-day conferences of the faith, shall we say. Um, so you mark, you mark your memory with those. I remember things like traveling to Philadelphia with my mother and staying in a hotel room with one of her friends who took her teeth out and put it in a jar next to my childhood bed and um, you know, I, I mean, you know, and, and, and again, it's, you know, the mo the, the things about holidays that you cite, you know, the laughter, the weird moments, the moments that are kind of tense, who was there, who wasn't there, all those things exist in my life. They're just not the same. You know, it's, 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 it's when you're, especially when you're like a teenager, it's much harder to describe to your friends or peers, you know, what did you do over the holiday break? Everyone's experience is well different. There's at least a commonality of like, who do you spend Christmas Eve with? Who do you spend Christmas day with? I had special days and wonderful memories in my life. They just didn't happen to coincide with December 24th and December 25th, respectively. So in a way, you really do have to kind of take stock and be present in the moment naturally. And that's something that a lot of people who had a more typical upbringing still didn't master. And I and I can't say I had either, but I definitely think a lot of it is just being present in the moment. And I'd be lying if I said I got that right all the time or I'm still getting that right. But I think now that's what I try to, even though I've introduced more typical holidays into my adult life, that's still something that I try to consciously always think about that it's not really about Christmas. It's just about that's the reminder to take stock. And so just setting those reminders for myself and my family and friends. So I don't know if you've thought about this, but this came across while I was listening to you. Do you think it's interesting that your biggest holiday fantasy was Halloween, where you knock on doors for candy <laughs> as opposed to knocking on doors for pioneering? <laughs> um, there's definitely, yeah, the irony's not lost on me. I, I definitely see the... The connection. Um, I will say that, you know, when you're a kid, you're knocking on doors all the time and you're giving speeches in front of, I mean, literally, you know, hundreds and thousands of people at those bigger conventions and assemblies. You know, that's in a weird way part of why I am the way I am. And public speaking has never freaked me out. And theater and acting in itself, I still get nervous. But the very idea of getting on a stage, that doesn't weird me out. Um, but do I... Um, yeah. D did it have something to do with that? I don't know. It might have. I definitely think a lot of it was the costuming. I definitely think now a lot of it was like the spiritism within the holiday and that, that you know, that sense of it was of all the holidays, even though all were forbidden. I mean, the others were sort of like, oh, we don't do that, but at least the intent is good. That was the one that was like, no, you know, that, that, that was the demon one. Like that was that was the one that was. And of course, naturally, the most forbidden is the one I'm going to want the most. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's knocking on the doors. I never cared about the candy. That really had nothing ever to do with it. Well, I didn't, I didn't, you were 18. Well, <laughs> I mean, as a child. I mean, as a child. No, when I was 18, did I... 
That'd be so funny if I left that party and went like trick-or-treating. Um, I should add that onto the story. No, that's really creepy. No, that never really, no, I think the connection to other people and again, having that shared experience was appealing to me. Even as a young kid, the idea of like, Getting the candy was never, I think I even remember making that a bargaining chip. That's kind of sad. I think I remember being like nine or 10 and trying to bargain with my mom. Like, what if I just went with them and I didn't wear a costume, but we just hung out and I was just like with them and I helped them. And that was, of course, no, because you're still participating in it and you're endorsing it. And why would you want to do that? And blah, blah. And then, of course, out came the Bible. And then it was like, oh, I don't even want to have this argument anymore. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a lot. Connor, thank you for sharing your celebratory journey to the dark side with us. We're glad you joined us over here. Me too. And I hope that there's many more, maybe a little brighter. (laughs) Thank you. Dear listener, thank you for joining us for another fantastic season of Life And. It is thanks to people like you that we're able to make this wonderful project a reality. Be sure to subscribe and leave a great review wherever you enjoy listening to your favorite podcasts. Though we will miss these wonderful stories of celebration, we're thrilled to announce our theme for next season is Life and Home. If you'd like to submit to be a storyteller for next season, please visit the podcast website at www.lifeandstorytellers.com for more information. Until next time, dear listeners, remember to breathe and to make time for stories, yours and others'.